Welcome to this week's episode of the Insurance Lab. Insurance Lab is brought to you by Heffernan Insurance Brokers. Consistently ranked as one of the nation's largest independent insurance brokerage firms, Heffernan Insurance Brokers has nationwide presence, offering comprehensive business insurance, personal insurance, employee benefits, and financial service products to a wide range of businesses and individuals. Heffernan Insurance Brokers, because you're different. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Insurance Lab. I have a very dear and old friend with us today. We're going to go over some work comp issues that uh, that are, have popped up recently. Uh, with me today is Lisa Scott, who is Vice President and Manager of Heffernan Consulting Division. Lisa, welcome to the Insurance Lab. Why, thank you, Ben. We have known each other for a very long time, and I'm having me on. You may be the, one of the first people that I met in Northern California. Do you remember that? I do. I remember clear as day. I remember you at your office. I remember going out to lunch. That was eons ago. It was officially 28 years ago. Can you believe oh it? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was only 15 years ago. As if that's a shorter amount of time. It is, but it's still a long time, right? I, yes. I think you and I had just started at Heffernan. You might have been there a little longer than me, but I was brand new. Yeah, I do remember that. And now, Lisa, look at us now. I'm running a podcast with 428,000 unique individuals listening. Can you believe this? Yes, Ben. I knew the minute I met you, you were going to be an amazing success. <laughs> Well, you should check out my our Instagram uh, page. Again, four hundred twenty-eight thousand uh, followers. Uh, it's chaos. I came into the office today. There were ten people outside of the building asking, "Were we recording today?" I said, "Yes." They're outside the studio right now, looking in. Uh, I, I tried to hide when we were going to do this, too, Lisa, and they still found it, and they're still here. So, can we just tell the people at home, please do not come down to the office. We cannot let you in, and I can't let you into the booth. Yeah, no, with this this environment right now, we definitely don't want to do that. But it's I, just not safe. Yeah, yeah some people don't have their masks on, which is strange. <laughs> well, and growing too, so loyally and growing, which is good. Lisa, Lisa, it, this is a good time to have you on because you know we've had some, a Senate bill, an Assembly bill that are raising a lot of questions. And so, what I'd like to do right now is. Is have you? Can you tell us what is this Senate bill, the SB one one five nine, and its intent? What what does this mean? So, Senate Bill one one five nine is specific to California, and it basically has it's almost unprecedented in that it set a rebuttable presumption for a communicable disease to be industrial, and the standard California Workers' Compensation Labor Code, that is not the case, but this new piece of legislation does, in fact, make COVID-19 a potential industrial injury for people that are not people reporting working from home, but actually reporting to work. And this is pretty groundbreaking, correct? I mean, you know, a virus, you know, has not been uh, considered a, uh, a work comp exposure in the past, correct, or generally not? That is absolutely correct. The last time something like this actually happened was back in 2009 when H1N1, the swine flu, came into play, and that was our last pandemic. 
And during that last pandemic, nothing as groundbreaking as this occurred. It did affect labor law a little bit, but nothing like COVID-19 has uh, at present day. So I understand there are three parts to SB 1159. What are the highlights? Tell me, tell the listeners, what are these parts? There is a lot of information to be had and that is contained. So I'm going to do my best to give a very high level. Just know anyone who's listening that there's more to this. So part one, it's pretty simple. It basically codifies, which means that it made the executive order that Governor Newsom did for the rebuttable presumption for COVID-19 back in March into law. And, but that expired on July 6th. So then part two moved in and part two basically said from July 6th through January 1st of 2023, that there would be a 30-day rebuttable presumptive period of time in which an employer and claims administrator could prove that the COVID positive diagnosis was not, in fact, acquired at work. And the 30 days applies to firefighters. They applies to basically frontline workers. And it also extended it to home health care agencies, direct patient care, custodial employees, and anybody in contact with the care of any COVID-19 patients. It also included work-at-home health facilities, as well as in-home supportive care services. So definitely a, a huge jump for our clients and our client bases. Do you have any clients like that, Ben? I do. I do. And I'm curious if, if would folks that are, let's say, handling a cash register on the retail side, do, do they fit into this, into uh, this category? They technically don't. They would actually fit into what moves into part three of the bill and that that part of the bill applies to all other employees. And it gives a 45-day presumption for people such as a cashier to prove whether they contracted it at work or if they contracted it at home. How do they do that? How do they prove they caught it at work or at home? That seems like that would be an almost impossible thing to do. It really is. It's easy if you know that somebody is that works for you has somebody at home that they are caring for that tested positive for COVID. That's obviously an easy one. It becomes more challenging when you're just not sure of their home environment. And my team actually has forms that can be utilized, tracing forms that can help make that determination. There are also other vendors that we utilize to help trace that for our clients because that is a a huge issue. Bottom line, our recommendations are to get, if you are not sure whether somebody got COVID at work or at home, our recommendation is to get the claim to your workers' compensation carrier immediately and let them do the work for you and do the investigation. Interesting. Interesting. So I guess that leads into the next question, or how are the carriers and claims administrators handling the reporting requirements 
uh, in uh, SB 1159? It's been a little crazy. My team has actually been working all of the California carriers to make sure that we are able to advise our clients by carrier as to how to handle that. What SB 1159 did was it, it actually, believe it or not, gave some strength to employers in that if somebody is not a frontline worker or a healthcare provider, as we discussed in part two, then we have to determine whether or not the employer had a outbreak. So basically SB 1159 has outbreak language. And there are certain percentages based upon number of employees, number of employees by location of positive COVID-19 cases. So what the California carriers have done is they have put out two forms. The first form is, is it's actually retroactive in that from July 6th through September 17th, California employers are required to report to their workers' compensation claims administrator the number of COVID-19 claims, both industrial and non-industrial, to their carriers and their claims administrator. The workers' compensation claims administrators will then utilize that information to determine whether or not an outbreak has occurred. And therefore, if they, your example of somebody working a cash register falls within exposure to that outbreak and therefore it becomes a presumed compensable COVID-19 claim. If, however, that outbreak is not proven based upon, again, the retroactive information California employers are providing, then it would be denied as a workers' compensation claim. So essentially the legislation did give California employers a really strong stance at the presumption being rebuttable with its outbreak language, but then at the same time, it also made the employers and claims administrators the ones that would have to house this language, I'm sorry, house this information to prove an outbreak versus not. So it gave us some really good information and a good leg up on this, but it also created a lot of work. Now, not to add to any more confusion, but there's mm-hmm. AB 685. What is AB 685 and why was it passed? So AB 685 was actually passed on the same day as SB 1185, and that was September 17th. And what that did was it is giving California employers specific information on how they must notify their employees should they be exposed to COVID. They're also giving California employers specific notice requirements, like posters and, you know, how a diagnosis is considered positive versus not. Um, They're also, AB 685 also indicates how an employer is supposed to report to public health agencies. And last but certainly not least, it does expand Cal OSHA's authority. I have actually been referring to this as AB 685 has given Cal OSHA superpowers essentially because if COVID-19 in the workplace is found 
to be a significant problem. And if the employer is not creating a safe space for their employees to come to work, then they could literally be shut down. In addition, it gives serious violation citations to employers that created them. And so basically OSHA has superpowers and if they feel that you as the employer are not providing a safe workplace in this COVID-19 environment, they will shut you down. So you said gave OSHA, Cal OSHA superpowers. Lisa, question mm-hmm. for you. What, what is your favorite superhero? <laughs> My favorite superhero has always been Spider-Man. Interesting. Interesting. Going with DC Comics on it. Um, interesting. Yes. I think Superman or, or Spider-Man's DC, right? Yes, I do believe so. I'm not as, as into it to know with like comics, but I've always loved Spider-Man. And my absolute favorite is when he drops into a frame hanging upside down. Ah, uh, I know exactly. I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. I like Spider-Man too, although those reboots, I can't keep up with like, you know, is this a new Spider-Man movie? Is it a reboot with a new Spider-Man? I mean, who was Tobey Maguire was the, I think, the original Spider-Man, right? In the mm-hmm. in the new rounds of movies. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know who's, who's after him. I don't know. All I know is the guy. The guy who played the guy. The guy who played the friend from the uh, Social Network. He was. He. I can't remember what his name was. I think he was Spider-Man. He was, and he did really well. And then the MJs. There's been so many different MJs too. I thought that's that's been interesting to see as well. Yes, that's true too. You know uh, who my favorite superhero is. Who? So um, I was born in the in the seventies, and this may be a, a late seventies, early eighties character. It's also DC. It's a little known superhero. Only a couple comics. Uh, his name is Gnome Boy. Have you heard of Gnome Boy? No, I have not. Oh, uh, Gnome Boy was the best. He was like this little boy somewhere from the Midwest. I think like I want to say like Columbus. He could turn himself into a like a, a lawn gnome on command. Right, that was his power, like little boy, and then he's a lawn gnome. Wow. Yeah, kind of. You would think a useless superpower because how the heck is a gnome gonna fight crime? But do you know what happened? What? All of a sudden, little boy's there. Then there's a gnome, and the criminals are like, "What the hell just happened?" And then they start talking about it, and then before you know it, the authorities show up. <laughs> yeah, he was great. I like that one. I liked him. I have not seen him in a long time. I'm in the house Listeners, to the yeah, listeners, please do not send me Gnome Boy comics. I already have enough, uh, so please don't do that. So going, getting back to, to what we're talking about, do these new pieces of legislation, do they cross over? Do they interact with, any, with each other? Are there any risks? What's the deal? Yes, I'm afraid all of the above. They cross over, they create risks like we've never thought of before, in my humble opinion. Essentially, what's happening here is, so in workers' compensation, there are penalties. They are civil penalties, but they fall under the workers' compensation statute. They are serious and willful, as well as 132A claims. And basically, what these two pieces of legislation are doing together is they're creating very easily to prove serious and willful claims or potentially labor code 132A claims. Serious and willful would be that an employer did not do their best to keep their employees safe. And because of their serious and willful 
actions of not keeping a safe workplace, they will be afforded additional penalties on top of the workers' compensation claim. Labor Code 132A is that you have discriminated against an employee because maybe you didn't you know, keep the diagnosis anonymous. And now, mind you, you have to keep the employee's name anonymous, but you still do have to tell your employee, other employees that have been exposed that they have been exposed. So that's a huge challenge in and of itself because typically employees can probably figure out who that person is. So right, 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 right. And we got, listen, we deal with 132A claims a lot, especially with EPLI claims. That's actually a pretty common occurrence. Yes, and this will be a whole new type of penalty claim. Interesting on this one. Okay. Um, what are some of the best practices for employers right now at this point? You know, right now, if somebody comes to them and says that they have COVID-19, I definitely would engage a, a private conversation as to how it occurred. And if it is unclear as to whether it happened at home or outside of work, then I would file the claim with your workers' compensation carrier right away. Again, we only have 30 to 45 days to rebut such a presumption of COVID being industrial. So report immediately when in doubt. And second, if an employee says they do not wish to report it at that time, whether it is clearly industrial or whether it is actually strike that. If an employer comes across a situation where an employee is not sure as to where they contracted COVID-19 and they do not wish to report it to the workers' compensation carrier, definitely give the employee a claim form that will at least stop the clock on the 30 or 45 day period of investigation. So bottom line, report when in doubt. And if there are any questions after that, you can always reach out to any member of my team for assistance and we'll help. Well, that, that is a good uh, last question I have for you. Where, where can the listeners go for more information or assistance? Now, you said you, but remember, I have 428,000 unique individuals listening. So that's going to overwhelm your phones. Where can they go? They can go to my team's website, which is hibconsulting.hgitservices.com. And on our website, we have a COVID-19 page. And on this COVID-19 page, we have everything from the COVID-enhanced FMLA information to information on exactly what we're talking about now. We even have a database of carrier-specific forms that can be used to report any retroactive claims or any future claims. Lisa, you've been a wealth of knowledge today. You just taught me uh, SB1159 and EB685. For that, I appreciate it, and thank you for joining us on this week's episode of the Insurance Lab. Thanks, Ben. It was my pleasure. Great. Thanks, all.